gods of sea and sky, I conquered Troy. Me, Odysseus, a mortal man of flesh and blood and bone and mind. I do not need you now. I can do anything. as toys. For ten years you let blood spill to your shores. But it was my serpent who silenced Nawakawan, or your horse was doomed. Yet you refuse to give thanks. You forget a man is nothing without the gods. You will suffer for this offense. For your arrogance, you will drift on my sea for an eternity. Never again will you reach the shores of Ithaca. You cannot stop me! You will suffer. Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. Hope you enjoyed that clip from the old 1997 The Odyssey TV series with Armand Asante playing Odysseus. This grand myth really covers it all. Yes, the gods can be creeps, but projecting too much morality upon them makes us no better than the village atheist or Christian fundy Twitter girl boss. And let's face it, humans ain't great at passing any morality test. And I wonder if many today could even pass the Turing test. The Odyssey also highlights that hubris is one of our great downfalls. We think we can do it all, that we require no divine assistance, inner dialogue, or sense of gratitude for the numinous. And then, as Paul writes, pride cometh before the fall. Then we wonder why we sink more into matter and madness. As J.K. Chesterton said, A madman is not someone who has lost his reason, but someone who has lost everything but his reason. A delusion is an idea. That an idea can be contagious. I mean, we prefer ideas that fit a pattern. In other words, we don't believe what we see. We see what we believe. And when we are stressed or our beliefs are challenged, when we feel threatened, the ideas we have can become irrational. The other great lesson from the Odyssey is why all great conflicts and injustices happen. Sure, an argument can be made that the Trojan War happened because of love, because of the ambitions of rulers, because of the vanity of higher beings. But the truth is that the Trojan Wars occurred because Zeus thought the world was too overpopulated with men. 
Whether humans threatened him or he believed resources would be scarce is academic. The point is that the supreme being of the cosmos decided to initiate a eugenics and genocide project from his executive office. Release the Kraken! You are specks of dust beneath our fingernails. Your very breath is a gift from Olympus. You have insulted powers beyond your comprehension. And guess what? The project has never ended. The demiurge continues even today, eliminating those that might wake up too much and breeding a race of murderous meat sacks that love them some divide-and-conquer games without frontiers. Nothing has changed. And here we are in these end times of this age of Hermes. Hermes, the one god, along with other trickster wisdom deities, Hecate and Athena, who assisted the awakened and heroic in the Odyssey. And that is you, oh you of the broken places, awake and heroic as you have endured so many Trojan wars for so many lifetimes always one step ahead from the memos and manipulations of Olympus. God isn't for you, Lenny. God is for men who have no use for freedom. You follow the trickster, and you are a trickster yourself. And you know these days are the hardest of them all. But you eat nervous breakdowns for breakfast. It's all fun and games until someone loses a third eye. And then it's just Gnosis. The psychotic drowns where the mystic swims. As Hunter S. Thompson said about the current surveillance state and soft porn totalitarian system, in a closed society where everybody's guilty, the only crime is getting caught. In a world of thieves, the only final sin is stupidity. Well, it's not really a measure of mental health to be well-adjusted in a society that's very sick. So welcome to Aeon Bike. We're running with those searching for the truth and avoiding those who have found it. We're writing our own gospel and living our own myth. We're winning the game of Saturn and fooling the stupid meat sacks that are ruled by Olympus and its eugenics genocide plan. Some of you may die, but it's a sacrifice I am willing to make. And guess what, too? Some have said that the Odyssey is simply the story of the soul or Sophia. Helen of Troy represents the soul or Enoya that has been kidnapped by Archons and must be rescued. That's the whole plot. After all, in some Gnostic myths, Sophia reincarnates across history without her memories, including as Ellen of Troy, and finally ends up in a brothel where Simon Magus rescues her. And then both go all metaphysical Bonnie and Clyde against Yaldi Baldi and his thug angels. Boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. And here we are, knowing that being part of Sophia's rescue operation is part of our destiny. We play the trickster, 
we play the rescuing paladin, and we bring down Olympus once and for all. You cannot play God, then wash your hands of the things that you've created. Sooner or later, the day comes when you can't hide from the things that you've done anymore. Both myth and history are sure fiction, as Alan Moore said, rewarding if we take all the advice from the Odyssey. Definitely, one of the greatest realities of both fiction and myth is the importance of altered states of consciousness for that sweet gnosis. So it's a delight to once again host Chris Bennett, the leading authority today on entheogen use of the ancients and moderns. He smokes his way to the virtual Alexandria to discuss his new book, Cannabis, Lost Sacrament of the Ancient World. Get ready to modify everything you thought about the ancients, from the Israelites to the Greeks, about how they contacted higher worlds. Ash smoke on the water, fire of revelation in the sky. It's better to burn out than to fade away. Due to tech and weather issues, including a hurricane where Chris resided, we came a little short of an hour and 30 minutes. But I'll provide the entire interview for everyone as a fall special. For subs, I'll include a section of a previous interview with Chris where he discusses the entheogen use in occultism across history, including the drug use of Knights Templar, John D., and Freemason groups. Amazing insights, and you won't want to miss this. So please sub for the full psychedelic experience. We were somewhere around Barstow, on the edge of the desert when the drugs began to take hold. All right, well, that makes you a fucking hypocriticizer, too. So shut the fuck up and smoke my weed. This information will certainly provide more tools for your essential inner journey. By Odin's Dingleberries, you don't go to the underworld just to visit the gift shop, but to find those programmed demons and convert them to winged assistants that will take you to the embrace of Sophia. That is your destiny. That is within you. We bring down Olympus together by tricking the shit out of it and rescuing Helen from the dark tower of conformity and mechanical thinking. Anything else would be average. Where there is fire, we will carry gasoline. The more you tighten your grip, Tark, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. Let the Karens and Katamites of the establishment destroy each other in their circular firing squads. We are on a special odyssey, which is to find our true selves. You are tearing me apart, Lisa! In India, a common technique for training young elephants is to tie a baby elephant to a post with ropes or chains. The baby elephant will initially try to break free, but eventually accepts being tied up and stops trying to escape. When the elephant matures into adulthood, trainers will simply stake that elephant to the ground with the same post and ropes. Despite being strong enough to uproot the post as an adult, the elephant will stay tied to that spot 
having associated the post with its power to restrain from babyhood. Game over, man. This demonstrates how early conditioning can lead to lifelong beliefs and habits, even when the restraints are only illusion. The elephant, limited by its youthful experience, exemplifies how our upbringing shapes our thinking and behavior as adults, whether those limitations are real or only ingrained perceptions. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Here at A.M. Byte, you are no longer tied by phantom ropes or chains. Your destiny is to roar and be free because Gnosis has shown you that liberty and a masterless journey are the true essence of any human wishing to make the universe a better place. Simple as that. Let us remove any phantom ropes or chains and make Zeus cringe with our interview with Chris Bennett. You die and then you go up to get judged, right? God pops in the DVD of your life. Like, oh, I don't know about this right here. <laughs> Mind explaining yourself? <laughs> this might be the most arrogant thing I say all night, but I actually resent the fact that I'm going to get judged someday. Like, if that's true, that somebody's going to judge me, like, it doesn't even make any sense. It's like, dude, you made me, so this is your fuck-up, all right? Let's, let's not try to turn this around on me, you know? Jesus Christ, if it, you, you give me freedom of choice, you make whores, you have me suck at math, and you don't think this thing's going to go off the rails? Like, you set me up to fail, and now you've got the balls to now question your own goddamn work. Dude, if I made a car, if I built a car and it didn't run, I wouldn't, like, burn it forever. You evil piece of shit, light it on fire. I wouldn't. I would troubleshoot. Is there gas in the engine? Is the battery charged? Anything beyond this, I got to get a real man to look at it. But I believe in you. I'll try and help you out. Yes. This is the A.M. Bide interview. And as always, it is a pleasure to have Mr. Chris Bennett on the show. Always an amazing uh, adventure of high-quality gnosis and revelations on the truth about history and the truth about humanity. This time he will come to discuss his latest book, Cannabis, Lost Sacrament of the Ancient World. Chris, how are you doing? And thanks for coming on the show. I'm doing very well, thank you. Always a pleasure. Pleasure's all ours. And with us, too, we got the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Ready to search for truth in all the right places. <laughs> well, needless to say, Chris has definitely been a pioneer. Probably, I, I would say he's the OG when it comes to the truth about entheogens, historical entheogens. His work is priceless and has really moved the needle to a better world. And uh, I think his books and his research speak for themselves. He doesn't even have to uh, to defend himself. It's so awesome. But Chris, last time we had you, we had the group meeting in uh, June 2020. So it was a while. 
different world, strange world in those times. But maybe tell the audience a little bit about yourself. As you write in this book, Chris, you came to uh, marijuana in a matchbox from a friend in 1996. Is that what started your journey? Oh, I don't. I think you must be reading somebody else's uh, bio there. Uh, um, a matchbox. Really? A matchbox in 1990. I've been smoking grass for like 50 years. <laughs> wow. Uh, I, I better go look at it. I, I know it was your book and I did some copy and pasting. Well, regardless. So when did so you just got started with marijuana? When did you decide to go become a researcher? Oh, I, I, I started smoking grass when I was quite young, 12 years old. Uh, um, and I'm, I'm 61 now. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, I guess I always liked it. I quit the odd time. And, uh, um, but uh, in 1990, I had a, a very powerful religious experience that led to me to start researching uh, the role of cannabis in different religions and stuff, right? And so this is what led to my various books. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And it seems I wanted to ask your question. It seems obviously cannabis is now. Uh, pretty much part of the mainstream, why it never was. Well, we've, we've talked about it, uh, talk about the demiurgic world. But uh, even here in Illinois now, it's uh, medicinal, it's recreational. Uh, even uh, I live in the country and the little town next to me, they're putting in a uh, dispensary and you got half of the population, the boomers freaking out, the other half the other half is like money, 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 you know, so it's the same thing. But there's a dispensary in the middle of nowhere in McHenry country and north of Illinois. At the same time, I, of course, you know me, I feel all drugs should be legal. Adults are adults. We have free choice. We should when it comes to our bodies and so forth. But I almost feel that the marijuana legalization at this point, it might be doing more damage than good. And I think it should be legal simply because people, I think, don't know how to use it. And you've talked about it. You got so many the younger generation are using it without a sense, without approaching it sacramentally, without humility, you know, without understanding what these things are. What's your view on this? And do you agree? Well, here in Canada, you know, it's completely legal. And I got to say, um, the normalization here has just been so amazing. You know what I mean? Like every, you know, little old ladies tell you all about CBD and uh, uh, you go into the legal stores and it's all walks of lives and cultures and stuff like that. And uh, um, so much stigma has been removed. Right. Um, unfortunately, you know, like there's a certain corporate element that kind of took over from where the, the, the grassroots scene uh, was um, in regards to like, you know, I'm, I myself, I definitely, you know, cannabis is my sacrament and stuff like that. Uh, um, and that's that's where I, what, I've, what I've tried to bring to the world, you know, more knowledge about is, is this spiritual role of cannabis. But I don't know that I can condemn uh, um, recreational use or people that are not spiritual. You know, I mean, I, I really smoke with people that have, you know, no interest in any of that type of stuff. It's, it's just like kind of a, a human bond. And I think that's, you know, one of the things about it is, is it's more about this world, you know, it's like, and, you know, it's not just like the, the act of, of getting stoned, you know, it's an incredible medicine and, and the most nutritious food, you know what I mean, is hemp seed, 
Uh, um, you know, I, I, I had one of the first hemp seed food businesses in 1990, and it was pretty radical then. And now you go into any grocery store and you can get hemp hearts, which is like a superfood, you know. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the, the fiber hasn't really been realized, you know, very much. It's a little bit of hemp cloth out there and hemp paper, but these things are all really offer a, a way to regrain the planet, you know. Um, a downside of marijuana, um, I don't know. It's like, you know, I'm kind of stuck up. I'm a pot snob in, in the sense that I, I don't like to be around alcohol at all. I, I don't like to be around drunk people. I don't go to bars. Uh, um, and, you know, I would say I would never have friends over and they get drunk or anything at my house. <laughs> that never happens. So, um, yeah, I think that it's a positive thing overall, you know, like, the, and the uh, um, spread of it. But at the same time, you know, you got legalization in your state. There's other places where people are still going to jail for it and with outrageous sentences and around the world. You know, I forget about it here in Canada. I feel like the war is over. You know, it's like lost a lot of uh, the purpose for the activity. Uh, um, and and I think that largely the the stigmas against it are religious based. You know, it's like I think the roots of prohibition are Christians versus the devil's weed. And when we take a look through history, uh, this seems to be a scenario that's played out again and again, whether it be uh, um, the condemnation uh, of these things as devil sacraments, but when the indigenous cultures uh, were discovered using them, when the, 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 the Christians came to the new world, so-called new world, or the condemnation of the witches. And I would say this goes right back to the roots of, uh, uh, of you know, the Roman Catholic Church and uh, uh, the New Testament and the condemnation of Gnostic groups and pagans that also, I, I think we can really say uh, we're using these substances, you know what I mean? Certainly uh, in regards to the Hebrews, we now know they were through archaeological evidence, which I discuss at length in the, in the new book. Oh, indeed. And I think at the end of the day, uh, it might be academic, this discussion, because I think it was Aldous Huxley who said, an idiot on acid is still is just an idiot on acid. It's not you got to get your mind right, whether you're high, whether you're yeah. doing this, drinking alcohol. It it starts with that. So it's yeah. uh, tangential what we're talking about. Yeah. And I remember you ever watched that documentary Reefer Madness. That's one of my favorite like yeah, pieces yeah. of propaganda to laugh at. Yeah. Well, you know, like you can use cannabis to play like video games or you could be like a sadhu in India and partake of Lord Shiva's right. body and blood, you know, through a chillum of hashish before sitting down to your asanas and uh, trying to achieve oneness of the universe. You know what I mean? Uh, it's fuel for both. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, you know, and I think that a large part of the way it affects you has to do with your intention and, and beliefs about it. You know, when it was like, a, a major medicine in the 19th century. And it was like huge. You know what I mean? It was in cough medicines and uh, corn and bunny medicine, just such a wide variety uh, of medicines and widespread use. You know, Pisos Cure is one of the most common uh, cough medicines of, of the early uh, uh, 20th century was cannabis indica based, you know. Uh, um, people didn't really necessarily have like these mind-blowing experiences because they're taking a medicine and they feel the effects and oh, the medicine's working. I'm feeling better. You know? <laughs> um, and then ironically, when we rediscovered marijuana medicine uh, after 
uh, a prohibition in one of the condemnations was, was it was feel good medicine, like somehow, you know, feeling great and being happy was it was a bad side effect. You know, when you take a look at some of the side effects of pharmaceuticals out there, uh, um, that's laughable. Yeah, that Protestant mentality, you just can't have fun. Uh, so it is. Yeah. And yeah, and of course, it's great because I was thinking, God, you had the natives using this medicine to cure things. But in the 19th, 20th century, we were sawing off limbs or taking out uterus every time somebody had an ache or was hurt. So yeah. <laughs> I'm glad this has been integrated into our society because it does complement good health, you know, good science. Uh, rational science so it's part well, of it's, sort of it's revolutionized medicine because of the discovery of the endocannabinoid system you know like uh, um the endocannabinoid system which is a natural uh, uh major part of our, our our vitality in life uh is it was only discovered be through the discoveries of cannabinoids and how they work on the human body and then it was learned that thc mimics you know uh endogenous endocannabinoids which are cannabinoids produced in the in the body and these could be affected by cytocannabinoids you know and uh there's other interesting you know like uh, uh connections with cannabis in the human body like the seeds rich in gamma linoleic acid which is found in human mother's milk and just a couple other rare seed oils uh there's estrogen like molecules in cannabis you know uh um and so it's we have some sort of like i think you know certainly an agent relationship according to the latest archaeological evidence you know, people have been utilizing you know, cannabis for rope and fiber for close to 30,000 years. And we know the, the evidence of its ritual use goes back to five, 6,000 years ago. Like recently uh, in Spain, they found a 5,000 year old plate in this it was a, 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 a temple that was run by women uh, all uh, in high ro uh, role places. They figure either religious leaders or royalty. Uh, um, and uh, they found a huge plate with both cannabis and wine uh, residues that was, you know, 5,000 years old. Uh, um, and, uh, um, you know, similarly in Ukraine and Romania, there's evidence that cannabis was used in burial rituals going back that, that long as well, which is older than any uh, written religion or anything like that, you know. And I think the real revelation uh, um, in regards to cannabis and other entheogens in this What's emerging from the ancient world uh, um, is that, you know, this is the foundation of a lot of how this start, stuff started, basically in shamanism and the use of uh, uh, psychoactive plants, maybe also ritual fasting and trance states induced by uh, uh, singing and dancing and that sort of stuff as well. But, you know, the undeniable reality is, is in, in the in the biblical tradition that, that cannabis played a, a very significant role in the Old Testament period, certainly. And I think that can lead to some pretty founded speculation into the New Testament period. Oh, I would agree. We certainly want to unpack that because your book has so much excellent research. But you also talk about in your book, Chris, you talk about the Great Leap Forward, which started 65,000 to 50,000 years ago, suggests cannabis may have enabled our prehistoric ancestors with novel new thought processes that aided in the development of tool making and other skills. So now we're in like uh, Terrence McKenna Stone Day yeah, territory. Yeah. Well, this, this, is, this is actually, you know, uh, based on, a, you know, I'm uh, excerpting a paper by uh, Dr. Jeffrey Guy, who was the head of GW Pharmaceuticals, one of the leading uh, can, can, medical cannabis uh, pharmaceutical companies, and Dr. John McPartland, a well-known uh, cannabis researcher. 
And they're speculating, you know, I'm sure inspired by McKenna, who also, you know, wrote about uh, cannabis as well, was a heavy cannabis user. McKenna, you know, he suggested there may have been uh, um, some connection between cannabis and storytelling because of the way we weave a tale and tie everything together. You know, there's all these kind of linguistic connections there that he felt. And uh, I think McKenna's, you know, uh, um, and not something. This isn't something that, uh, that, that that Dr. Jeffrey Guy and John McPartland go into, but McKenna certainly did. I think what what his greatest contribution to the field of uh, entheogenic studies <clears throat> was uh, bringing in um, uh, Julian Jaynes, uh, the origins of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind. And I, I think that's you know significant here as well uh, when we take a look at cannabis and how it was used uh, um, in ancient. Uh, uh, Judaism and Assyria and Zoroastrianism and these different religions, uh, um, because it, it you know it really ties it in. Uh, not necessarily that James is one hundred percent right, but I think he's got a, a, some pretty interesting contributions uh, when it comes to the origins of thought. He didn't mention psychoactive substances himself. McKenna uh, uh, um, threw that in there, but basically, for those people that don't know about Julian James, I'm sure most of your listeners do. Uh, um, he suggested that early man didn't think as we did now. They were more animal-like, just living, trying to survive through the day. And that the initially uh, hearing voices in your head thinking uh, um, occurred for most people, uh, much like it does for a schizophrenic, is something outside of themselves. Uh, maybe the voice of their father or their chief or something like that. And this developed into the idea of, uh, of some sort of God and, and heavenly messages. Yeah, exactly. We had voices in our head. And so, <laughs> so I guess, yeah, psycho, psychoactive probably helped us manage this, attune yeah. it, uh, yeah, optimize well, it, it. There's receptor sites in the areas of higher thinking and memory. So it's right, right in there, you know. And uh, even today, many uh, novice users report, you know, uh, paranoia, delusional thoughts and that type of stuff. And it, I, I suspect that cannabis can exasperate some people with schizophrenia, not necessarily helping probably CBD or THC uh, uh, affected uh, might be beneficial in some some strains and other strains detrimental in these cases. You know, I, I'm not a scientist, but uh, uh, um, I'm pretending to be one right now on the show. <laughs> <laughs> you play one on TV. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, um, uh, and I think this is one of the the, the real reasons uh, uh, was used in religious ritual. You know, and you got to. I think there's an interesting connection, and James goes into this as well. Um, like most uh, ancient religious uh, uh, texts, uh, that is, uh, Avesta, these sorts of things, a lot of the biblical stuff, uh, were written in verse and uh, uh, um, come out like that. And I, I think that this is interesting when we take a look at uh, um, the role of cannabis and music. And cannabis has inspired a number of different genres, you know, rock and roll, reggae, Greek, rimbigiata, jazz, uh, um, you know, a variety of things. And, and also hip hop, where I think, you know, the hip hop culture is really connected. Many of these uh, well-known hip hop artists celebrate cannabis culture. And I think there's a connection here with what was taking place in the ancient world in cannabis. Uh, originally, the drum and the lyre, these were shamanic tools uh, used in uh, um, ritual invocation. You know what I mean? And James talks about how repetitive music throws the brain into a right trance and a repetitive pattern. And out of that 
stuff comes out for a hip hop artist. It's the verses that they're spitting out. They're rhymes. A lot of it's just on live and freestyle. And I suspect that that was a similar situation uh, uh, um, with, in regards to some of these temple settings where we know cannabis was used, uh, where drums and beating, and then eventually, but um, but um, but um, all of a sudden the holy word starts spewing forth. You know. Uh, um, and uh, um, again, cannabis is known to affect the areas of the mind involved with music and poetry. No, it makes perfect sense. Uh, I mean, your book covers it. And I mean, it was always cracks me up. You talk to Christians or Christians never noticed that in the Hebrew Bible, many places, for example, David just goes on an altered state gets completely naked and he's just dancing in front of the the altar of the lord the ark and it was completely dionysian and shamanistic and uh, a rave it's like he could be at a rave somewhere in the field and he would be right at home right (laughs) yeah 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 no for sure you know and i think it's a real shocker for people you know uh uh, it's hard to get their head around uh, you know most people that have read the Bible, don't really know much about its creation or understanding, you know, uh, I'm like, you know, the idea that, you know, the Hebrew God Yahweh was married and had a wife, see, is mostly unknown, I would say, probably in the Christian West amongst churchgoers and stuff like that. But this is widely accepted amongst uh, uh, historians and biblical scholars now. And, and uh, um, there's, there's no denying it. You know what I mean? Yet it's just so foreign to these people uh, the idea that this could have taken place, you know, and it's, it's, I, I, I'd like to see more knowledge about the, the origins of the Bible uh, uh, take place. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's no doubt, even in uh, scholars like James McGrath and Margaret Barker have said that even the Gnostics, when you're look, or the Mandeans, when you're looking at Sophia and the Archons and all that, it's all coded for all the angels and Asherah of when when Israel was more of an animistic, shamanistic sort of religion that got suppressed. So it's all there. And also, too, is I mean, which is very important, and you bring in your book and other scholars have noticed, but the ancient Hebrews were probably basically a cult of Dionysus, right? It was an altered yeah, there, state. There, there, there was like some overlaps there, you know, for sure that came up. There's been coins minted uh, that indicate, you know, that the kind of combined Yahweh and Dionysius and stuff. Uh, um, so there were certainly some overlaps there. You know, I don't know about the, 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 the deeper origins of Yahweh. I don't, I don't think so. I think it's just, he's so, Yahweh is so synchronistic that he just adapts everything. You know what I mean? I think that's the power of his uh, success, you know, going into uh, um, arriving in in ancient uh, Levant and uh, adopting all the aspects of El, the the king god, and adopting all the aspects of Baal, the storm god, you know, and even taking their wives and stuff like that until he adopts all her aspects as well into his big globby parasitic uh, <laughs> identity, you know, at least according to the Gnostics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, that's what the Hebrew Bible is. And yeah, suddenly the Jews goes into captivity in Babylon and he comes out more like Marduk and he's more about laws and order. And you're like, hmm, that's kind of a different God. And oh my God, Satan's the bad guy now. What happened, you know? So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is where all the, I think a lot of the cannabis and stuff falls by the wayside is in this transition. 
Uh, um, and initially, uh, um, uh, um, I think it was a, a big part of uh, the cult of Asherah, you know, and mm-hmm. the, uh, scholars have suggested this as well. Uh, um, and uh, um, it, it's interesting because, you know, I, I've been on the, the show uh, years before and I've talked about uh, these Hebrew references to uh, Cannabossum that were, for, uh, Canna and Cannabossum that were suggested by uh, Sula Bennett, a, 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 a Jewish uh, etymologist and uh, 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 um, anthropologist who suggested there were these references to cannabis in the Hebrew Bible uh, under these terms that were mistranslated as calamus. And both that, those references, when you follow them in context and this new archeological evidence out of Telerad in Jerusalem, where they found uh, a Jewish temple site uh, uh, um, and two, which had two altars, one that frankincense was burnt on and the other which uh, uh, cannabis resins were burnt on. The, the, the archeologists involved believe it was like a form of hashish um, uh, is also connected with, with the cult of Asherah, you know? And uh, um, so it, I, I think it's really fascinating uh, because one of the reasons this uh, temple site is so well-preserved was because it was canceled. It was like buried in a day at the time of, they believe, Hezekiah or maybe his grandson, Josiah, who were, I don't want to say monotheistic reformers because I don't think there was any monotheism uh, prior to then. I think that, you know, you have to talk about things like uh, centralizing worship in the Jewish temple into one cult, you know, and it's something new. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a, re- a return to something this is a new thing. And the Bible is written by the people that, you know, laid out by the people that were on this team. Right. Uh, so it makes it seem like that it was always that way. And these other things were uh, uh, adultery. But the archaeological evidence is pretty clear throughout the Levant uh, that it was polytheistic. And uh, Asher was coupled as, with Yahweh. There's multiple inscriptions and engravings and things like that that refer to Yahweh and his Asherah and, and show him in uh, uh, combination, just like this was uh, all over the ancient world with other deities as well, Ishtar and Tammuz, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, um, it was like the common kind of way of worship. Uh, um, and so the idea that it was something old is just it's just not not laid out in in the dirt you know what i mean it's just something that's that that comes to us through the bible and um i think it's also a time you know that they move away from more shamanic type of revelation into what like you pointed out coming back with laws and edicts like with marduk and it's a means of ruling the kingdom you know what i mean And, and ruling the people you know it's like uh uh trying to bring a polytheistic uh, kingdom into agreement <coughs> must have been a real struggle, you know, uh, um, because there's all these uh, uh, conflicting deities with their own cults and uh, their own wants and needs. And uh, uh, um, so everybody's vying for the, the trying to be the head of it all and trying to be the ones in control, you know, and that's switching up here and there, you know, at the, at the time all this took place, the Jews were uh, being attacked by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And this is when it all kind of fell apart for them. And so there was a real need to consolidate the, the, the kingdom in, in a lot of ways due to political factors. And uh, so being no separation between religion and the state, you know, this, I think, led to monotheism. That it's lasted into the modern era and created the world that uh, that we have before us now and its imbalances is 
it, 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 it is pretty, pretty wild. You know, I think, you know, like the, the loss of something like an entheogen like cannabis and stuff is one thing. But when you think about the suppression of the goddess and uh, the, the, the divine feminine uh, into uh, just a solely a patriarchal uh, worldview where everything is created by this one male deity, um, <clears throat> I think it explains a lot about the state of the world we're in. And, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the warlike kind of existence, it, it's all, you know, it's all, it's, it, it's really due to a lack of having a good mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. hey, hey, Chris, um, do you think there was a competition between different, you know, substances back in the old days? Like, it's pretty clear that the drug of choice of Christianity is wine, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's a sacrament. Dionysus, yeah. Right? yeah. And yeah, food, yeah well, you know, like Roman Catholicism for sure. I don't know that you could say that about you know the Gnostic texts. It's like you take a look at the Book of uh, IU. It's like there's a variety of substances in use in that, uh, um, and uh, uh, you know incense that contained a wonder and uh, vine branches put in wine, all sorts of wild stuff in that. Uh, um, but. Yeah, I don't know. I this I I, I one time uh, brought uh, Dr. Michael Aldrich over for a lecture, and he gave a great presentation on alcohol cultures versus cannabis cultures uh, in the ancient world. And he certainly thought that that there was some sort of uh, a big feud. <clears throat> I think a lot of like you know wine and stuff like that was often infused in the ancient world. It's a pretty common. I mentioned that earlier about that five thousand uh, year old. Uh, uh, plate that had both wine and cannabis residues on it and they found you know like uh in scythian tombs they found uh, uh golden goblets that contained both residues of uh of cannabis and opium in it mixed with wine the zoroastrian texts walk to refer to uh, uh bong infused wines uh, uh as well you know so it wasn't an uncommon feature and you know strong drink in the bible as well was probably a mixture of uh, a variety of substances but yeah, think of uh, marcus the magician the valentine yeah, marcus the magician he would throw spices yeah. in his wine and and it's the document everybody would just get high immediately or yeah right after that. yeah 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 so uh, um, there's certainly indications of that. I think in the, in the cult of Dionysius as well, you know, it's probably, and I'm not just talking just cannabis, I'm saying like Hanbane, Mandrake, probably a variety of different substances. Um, but uh, I do, you know, it certainly became that way, I think, you know what I mean? When you take a look at uh, the Christian world and the Christian West, certainly wine and other alcoholic drinks have uh, have been okay whereas other substances have not been okay and there's always been prejudice against them i think even when you read accounts of when people you know after the crusades started going into india and the middle east and these places uh um when they came across it it was kind of looked down upon the use of cannabis or opium and these types of things uh um so i think there is some some element of that i don't know how much is of it is purely religious based. I, I, I don't think that, uh, I think, you know, the Roman Catholic church certainly made a distinction. 
Well, I have this theory that each substance, you know, a mind-altering substance has its own God built into it. Like you talk about the, the green man, you know, with, yeah. with cannabis and so and other, other things. And um, it might be that these gods were fighting with each other, you know, in the ancient days, you know, and all these little groups that had a particular God and with, with its particular drug. I think the same thing about music, actually. I think every kind of music has its own drug in the back of it. Like you mentioned, you know, hip hop yeah. and, 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 and of course, certainly uh, the jazz, jazz artists of the early 20th century, uh, loved, loved their, their smoke. But, um, you know, you got to wonder if, if there's not some sort of uh, chicken and egg thing going on here with the uh, who's influencing who. Is it the group with the substance or is the substance, you know, taking the group? Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, I guess I, I, I don't know that I believe in like discarnate entities and all, all these things. I think they're more like human projections to me rather than uh, um, uh, entities that have their own divine existence, you know. Um, I, I, I like the Gnostic concept of anthropos uh, a lot, you know, and I think that's where Carl Jung kind of came up with the idea of... Uh, of the collective unconscious uh, uh, um, was, was from that and alchemical material, you know, uh, um, anthroposis, like the spirit of humanity, you know, or Adam Cadman in the Kabbalah, you know? And um, I think, you know, like, I think that that's, that's, I guess it's got, it's kind of own independent and interactive kind of aspect to it. You know, uh, um, when I look at things like, uh, my initial religious experience uh, with cannabis had to do with uh, reading the book of Revelation, you know, and uh, uh, reading the tree of life verses. And that's what led me on this path. But at the same time, like, I can kind of see like the revelation of the world we live in today. I totally accept that it was written in 95 AD about that time period. You know, Babylon was Rome and the, right. the beast was a Roman emperor and stuff like that. But I think it's kind of bled into like the collective unconscious, you know, and uh, um, and so then, you know, a Anthropos is kind of interacting out with it. Maybe Anthropos even conceives of itself as God in its own way or something like that. Uh, um, but I think that's kind of where I'm at, that these are archetypes and things like that in, in, in the collective consciousness, but uh, uh, not freely independent beings and stuff is my own take on it yeah fair enough <laughs> and you can also talk about egregores we projecting I mean, you said we can project our telecon or energy out and it might and it certainly defies reality at some point so nothing it wasn't controversial in the old days i mean atheists <laughs> like sigmund freud believed in telepathy they thought you know animals have telepathy they can uh, detect earthquakes and storms hours before they strike. So, yeah, I mean, it's more, we're very connected. Yeah, you look at herds or schools of fish or flocks of birds, you know, oh, yeah. hysteria, you know, it's the like. The monarch butterfly. The, yeah. Yeah, it's just, yeah, you know, so it's it's an element, you know, and uh, I, I think uh, when I look at my own religious experience, I think it's tied in with that, that, um there's an aspect of us that's uh, continual. It's like what Jung said, the collective unconscious was the instinctual force in animals, you know, and uh, became more complicated with us and, and started adopting our symbolic universe uh, and, and incorporating into it. And I think it's like 
I think it was like a recognition of something that was, is, is what I had uh, uh, rather than, you know, some sort of future prediction or, or something like that. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I, I think that also the, it's interesting, like how the, the whole Garden of Eden mythology, you know, plays in with drugs, you know what I mean? And Adam <laughs> and Eve, and they eat the fruit and their eyes become open, they don't die as God said they would. And uh, I see that as tied in with all this stuff with Asher and Yahweh as well. Uh, numbers of scholars have written about uh, the, the Garden of Eden in light of what we know of uh, about Yahweh and Asher and see it as a, 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 a reversal of that mythology, you know. And, uh, um, it, you know, it, I think that, 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 that the, the ancient temple at least is described in the Old Testament. It had all the elements of the Garden of Eden. There was the serpent. Uh, that Moses made sat within the temple. And during the reforms of Hezekiah, they took out that brazen serpent and they destroyed it because the people of Israel had been burning incense to it. And the Asherah sat within the temple as well. They had to take that out and destroy it, you know. And uh, the Asherah could have been a sacred uh, tree symbol. The menorah, you know, itself is even like uh, a sacred tree symbol and goes back <laughs> um, to Asher worship. There's inscriptions where there's uh, clearly a, an ancient menorah style uh, drawing and two goats nibbling on it the, that are associated with uh, Asher and her tree of life, you know. And, and so it, it, the idea that the, the uh, temple, it, as it's described in the, in the Old Testament, uh, is a reflection of Eden is, is accepted on both sides of uh, the academic and the theological people point out to all these connections uh, 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 to it, you know, uh, there's the cherubim around there, and it's the flaming cherubim that guard the way to the tree of life and tree of knowledge. So it's kind of symbolic of that. Um, you got to wonder, you know, uh, who married Yahweh and Asherah? <laughs> they were married. Yeah, <laughs> they get yeah, a priest yeah. from uh, something from the Egyptians or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I probably when the uh, I think it was uh, I forget the name of the group that they believe brought the. Uh, the uh, Yahweh into Israel, uh, um, but uh, probably then it's just it's just like the meetings of cultures is where a lot of this type of stuff happens. I think you know what I mean. People make them together. <laughs> I don't think they're connecting in in some sort of divine heaven or anything. Yeah, well, maybe it was the bishop from the movie uh, The Princess Bride, Mawich <laughs> Peter Cook. Yeah, maybe he did it. And it's interesting too because. Uh, yeah, you're talking about the temple, but even before, again, we're going to when the Hebrews were more shamanistic, animistic, uh, they were connected to the spirit world and the f divine feminine principle, and they had the tabernacle, and as you show, the whole idea of the tabernacle would have been just one place you went in and you just got really high. I can just imagine like Jeff Spicoli walking out with smoke from the tabernacle, like, oh, dude, that's yeah. awesome, so... Well, well, this temple in a rod that they found was about, you know, probably about four feet by eight feet. Uh, uh, um, so it was like a tiny little space. Yeah. Uh, um, so it was, you know, built for keeping the smoke in. This is much like the Scythian tents, you know, the Scythians. They didn't have pipes and bongs back then. So people generally burnt cannabis in a brazier and you didn't want the smoke to just go off. So there's like tent-like structures. The, in the cases of Scythians, they, they had little teepee-like tent structures, but uh, uh, the, uh, the that account in Exodus describes the tent of the meeting, you know, and there's this, uh, this is where the first of these cannabossum references that Sula Bennett said were uh, references to cannabis occurred. Uh, um, 
is God commands Moses to make this holy anointing oil with about six pounds of cannabis uh, with some myrrh and cinnamon and uh, cassia mixed into about a gallon and a half of olive oil. And every time he's to speak to the Lord, he covers himself with this oil. And your skin's a big organ. THC is fatty soluble. Some can get through that way. But he also puts it over everything in the tent. And then he burns some on the altar of incense. And he speaks to the Lord and the pillar of smoke over the altar of incense. It's actually the, the, the pillar of smoke referred to the Shekinah and represents the physical presence of God in the temple. In the story, uh, Moses is only talking to uh, God when the smoke's pouring out through the tent in the, in the tent of the meeting. You know what I mean? Uh, um, so you, you throw a, a psychoactive substance in there with him. That's a pretty radical uh, 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 um, scenario. Is he talking to God or is he like a shaman or witch doctor in other cultures uh, having some sort of shamanic experience? Cannabis is actually interacting with the areas of higher thinking and memory. And Moses is pondering on a question for God, looking for an answer. And out of the smoke comes an answer. This is what you shall do. You know, um, now I'm not sure I believe in a historical Moses at this point, knowing what we know about uh uh, um, the composition of the Bible, and, uh, uh, and and I don't think the Hebrews prior to probably seven six hundred seven hundred BC knew about a historical Moses either. <laughs> um, but uh, um, at the same time, we have uh, uh, that this was thought to have been written around the time of Hezekiah and Josiah. Uh, uh, um, uh, we have the example of uh, in Assyria, uh, this is a time of Esarhaddon and Ashurbanipal, who both appear in the Old Testament. And we know that uh, in a similar way that cannabis under the name Kanabu, an Assyrian name for cannabis, was being used in sacred rites there that involved Ishtar. It was offered as uh, incense and a, and a drink to Ishtar and a, a, an anointing oil. Uh, um, and um, there's like uh, Assyrian records of large amounts of cannabis being delivered to the temple of Anana and the temple of Marduk. And uh, um, this is like historically known, you know what I mean? So uh, a very similar way that it was being used. We know that the Assyrians had, there's references to uh, 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 cannabis in the Assyrian text that referred to it as opening one's, a topical ointment that opened one's ear to God. And this is a similar way to the way that Moses is, is depicted in Exodus as, as using uh, cannabis as well. So this is probably like some sort of widespread kind of, you know, Near Eastern, uh, Mid-Eastern uh, uh, technique of ecstasy that was used at a variety of temples, certainly in the Assyrian ones. And now we know from this evidence uh, uh, in Arad, certainly in, in Hebrew temples, you know. And, you know, I mentioned uh, Ishira and Anana there, uh, uh, their involvement with cannabis. And they're not the only Near Eastern goddesses that were. And we also know Ishira, uh, 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 a Hittite goddess, so it was worshipped by the Hittites. As well, there's references to cannabis in uh, her poems and uh, talks about the ointment of Ishera is cannabis, which is cannabis. Uh, um, so I think that the indications are that uh, when we take a look at Asherah, uh, uh, Ishtar, Anana, Ishera, is this was like really connected to goddess worship and goddess worship goes way back. And uh, um, I think that, you know, like, uh, uh, Likely these goddesses originated with with a, with an identical earlier goddess. You know, it's like it, it splits off into different areas, takes on its own flavor, much like when language splits off, it all starts changing and developing and stuff like that. We see that with a lot of these deities and that explains their connections and their differences. 
uh, um, because they've taken on some local flavor and stuff like that. Uh, um, so, you know, uh, um, this was a widespread practice throughout the ancient world, it appears, you know, that, that it was completely eradicated so well is, is, is mind-blowing, but then so was the goddess, you know? Exactly. Yeah, well, if you, you have to control the mystic experience. If you can control that, you can control the people. And like you said, you can have a proper civilization, roads and math and all that good stuff. And uh, yeah, even then, um, what was I going to say? Uh, as you write in your book, oh, and I should say too, even people think the Romans were kind of open-minded, but the Romans were pretty strict about magic and other things. They wanted to make sure everything was within the uh the paradigm or the rubric uh if you would but as you write in your book chris the idea of um the goddess as you write the holy kadesh the holy uh, prostitute entheogens and fertility and sex are completely tied in in ancient times you can't have one without the other you might yeah say. yeah well cannabis is cross-culturally it's you know lots of references to being an aphrodisiac uh, um, I don't think necessarily initiating the feelings of sex, but enhancing them once, uh, once the arousal takes place. You know what I mean? This is why we see it in Tantra, uh, 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 Tantric rituals, you know. Um, and, um, you know, it's been suggested that like the heroes Gamos or the sacred marriage uh, where the uh, priest and priestess or the king and queen uh, uh, reenact uh, the, 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 uh, the activities of the god and goddess in the heavens to bring fertility to the earth. Uh, may have been inspired by the date palm because it has two sexes. We see this also with cannabis, though, where it's two sexes as well. And uh, um, I think it's equally possible that uh, there may be a connection to that, especially considering the very ancient uh, uh, relationship we see ritually with, with cannabis, you know, uh, you know, it's funny every time they make one of these, like there's been a number of archeological discoveries over the last couple of decades uh, regarding cannabis and sacred sites. And uh, every time they get one, a new one, they think this is the oldest evidence, the first evidence. <laughs> and then something older comes along, you know, it was just uh, a few years ago before the analysis of the, uh, the altars in Israel, that, you know, they found uh, evidence of cannabis in uh, China at a, a number of sites uh, 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 attributed to the Gushi culture, which was an Indo-European uh, group that uh, uh, um, lived in China, central China, from about 2000 to 400 BC when the indigenous Han Chinese chased them out of there. Um, and uh, um, that was thought, you know, that, that was from like 2,700 years ago. The, 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 the Hebrew evidence is 2,800 years ago. Both of them thought, oh, this is the oldest evidence ever. Uh, um, but it's clearly a lot older because uh, um, this, these, these were established practices by the time of this fossilization. It wasn't like people just started <laughs> using it. And then all of a sudden, no, that day. <laughs> um, and you know yeah, we uh, ran out oh dude we're out of our stash yeah yeah the 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 the, the use of cannabis by the indo-european gushi as well uh is very interesting because of their connection to uh um other indo-european groups and uh um it's been suggested that uh uh, the term Hayoma, which is the uh, Avestan uh, uh, counterpart of the Vedic Soma, a sacred beverage, uh, um, is derived actually from a Chinese term for cannabis, Huma. Uh, Mandy Hassan, a, a linguist, uh, um, came up with this theory. 
And uh, um, it, this this discoveries in in uh, um, China of the, they, of these sites so, uh, by the Gushi, what they found is they found um, uh, uh, really well preserved uh, female cannabis flowers in a tomb, about two pounds of it in a basket. Uh, they found it uh, mixed with capers, I believe it was, and another mm. getting some sort of food maybe prepared from it. And uh, then they found a bouquet of flowers and another tomb over a, uh, a mummy. And uh, then after this, they found numbers of braziers that uh, had been filled with rocks and cannabis burnt on it. And this is, uh, uh, and then it was inhaled in tomb and funerary rituals. And this is really interesting because this is the way the Scythians used it as well. Uh, um, Herodotus wrote about their funerary rituals and how they would uh, go into a tent and then throw cannabis on, on heated stones inside the tent. Uh, um, and, and then we have this evidence from uh, Proto-Indo-European times uh, um, from Romania and, and the Ukraine uh, of similar methods uh, uh, of cannabis being burnt in tombs for funerary. So this is a pretty widespread Indo-European practice. And we know that these uh, people, these Indo-Europeans in China, were in contact uh, with the uh, Bactria Margin archaeological complex temple culture. Uh, um, Victor Serianati, a Russian archaeologist, he found uh, three temple sites uh, uh, in this region, a large temple site, size of a football field type of thing. And large parts of these temple sites were dedicated to the making of a sacred beverage, uh, Serianati suggests, uh, based on uh, fossilization, fossilized material and, and sediments uh, that contained, in some cases, cannabis and opium, and in some cases, uh, uh, I mean, cannabis and ephedra and opium, in some places, uh, just cannabis and ephedra. And we know that these gushi in China as well were using uh, ephedra ritually as well, because uh, um, it's been found in uh, um, some of their tombs as well. Um, and so the idea is that this uh, link, name for cannabis, Huma, being used in China, which means Scythian hemp or fire hemp, depending on who's tr translating it, uh, became Heoma as it reached this Bactria Margiana archaeological complex. And then as it spread out from there, uh, uh, became Soma through uh, uh, further linguistic changes into the, the Vedic Indian language. Um, so uh, that's another major, you know what I mean, like major... Uh, um, connection and we know and, and and interestingly the people that traded the cannabis back and forth between these regions were the Scythians and they were known uh, by the name Homa Hilma Varga the Hilma gatherers and uh, ancient texts referred to how they both uh, burnt and drank cannabis and they found the golden goblets there with the cannabis residues in it as well as other evidence of uh, infused cannabis at other Scythian tombs. Uh, um, so I think that's a pretty, you know, like solid case for that. And when you combine that with the uh, the evidence of Arad, uh, of it being used at the temple site there, and the temple site, this is really important because, you know, they've never found archaeological evidence of the temple site in Jerusalem. This is the oldest evidence of you know, temple worship uh, uh, in Israel is this temple site in uh, um, Tel Arad, Jerusalem, which would have happened just prior to uh, the centralization of worship, which is uh, uh, written about in the Old Testament. Um, and it's thought to be based on uh, the same design, but a miniaturized version of the temple in Jerusalem uh, from descriptions. And they found in the temple at Tel Arad, there was a, an inscription, a house of Yahweh, which is, says specifically, 
as well as figurines associated with the goddess Asherah. And so there was two braziers, one with frankincense, one with uh, cannabis. And then I believe there was two standing stones originally, uh, um, but only one remained. And uh, um, what happened was, is this was all flipped over in a day, uh, all the stuff, sand put over top of it and a new floor built. And this is why all this material was so well preserved, right? And Hezekiah is described as going around and destroying all the Asherah temples. Uh, same thing, that he was didn't do a very good job of it because when his grandson Josiah uh, uh, came onto the scene, they were all still there. You know? <laughs> and then Josiah, he claimed to have found uh, that what happened in, in his kingdom period was they claimed to have found the, the book of Deuteronomy in the temple of Solomon. They're doing some reconstruction there, knock a wall down. The fraud, what a, yeah, yeah, lucky us. Is, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so it's in a pagan temple. We know that Yah, uh, Solomon was ac accused of burning incense uh, on high to the, the mother goddess. You know, it's written right in the thing. And uh, um, some scholars see the Song of Songs attributed to, to Solomon as a Hebrew version of the Heroes Gamos or Sacred Marriage. Uh, this is another place where one of these references uh, uh, referred to by Sula Ben is identifying cannabis can be found is in Solomon's Song of Songs, you know. Uh, um, so it's, uh, it's it, it, you know, and, and also three of the five references uh, referred to by Sula Bennett uh, regarding cannabosum have it in connection with frankincense. And particularly, this is notable in the last of these references in Jeremiah 6.20, where he says, what do I care from your uh, canna from a distant land? Your frankincense does not please me, you know? Uh, um, and he, he mentions both of them and condemns them, you know, as a, a incense of Sheba, uh, uh, um, one of the wives of Solomon. And uh, um, then in Jeremiah 44, we have the verse, uh, um, you know, where he's condemning the people. He, he comes across, he's left the Holy Land. It's been taken over by the Assyrians, Babylonians. They're all run out of there. He's over in Egypt, hiding out, comes across <laughs> Jews in Egypt. And he says, you're to blame for all the downfall of Jerusalem because you burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured mm -hmm. out offerings to her. And uh, they say, oh, well, we were fruitful when we were doing that. Things were good. You know, it's like, <laughs> now that it's bad. Uh, um, and, and it's a pretty interesting scene, but this is all <clears throat> taking place you know, within years of the, the cancellation of this temple in Iraq. And so it seems like it's all pretty clearly connected uh, uh, um, to this time period where the goddess is suppressed, monotheism rises up in, in, into this patriarchal uh, 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 religion that we still are, it's pretty much global today, you know. Yeah, very true. I love, uh, yeah, you do deal with uh, uh, Solomon, the Song of Songs, and of course it hides so much. And but you also talk about this uh, hymn called "Plow My Vulva," which yeah. says, "My vulva is well watered field. Who will plow it?" And then the answer comes, "Oh, lordly lady, the king will plow it for you, Dumiza." That, one, that made me laugh. It's like yeah, yeah. they were having fun in those days, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Sex was a little, you know, well, you know, similarly with some of the Gnostic sects as well, it seemed like it was a little more of a celebration of orgiastic yeah. uh, activity. Uh, um, so, yeah, I don't know. You know, it, it's, it's kind of uh, asceticism and uh, fertility aren't really too connected. <laughs> yeah, 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 or else you'll die out. You know, yeah. some sex believed in that and still yeah. do. So, it, whatever you choose, you know, whatever rocks your boat. Uh, 
So, but yeah, but this thing was so interconnected. And what about the idea of the uh, mystery religion Kaikion? That's been debated. Where do you stand with it, Chris? Um, I'm not, you know, it's, I don't think that it was cannabis from what I, you know, can see. It seems like obviously some sort of psychoactive substance was there. Um, I thought that uh, Tom Hatzis made a pretty good case for opium. I'm less convinced by some of this ergot research, you know, uh, um, that, that's, that's been popularized. Um, but, uh, definitely like, you know, there's, uh, there's, I think poppies and stuff are, are appear in imagery associated with elusive. So there's obviously some sort of psychoactive substance. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. You know, the cannabis is plays a lesser role, I think in a lot of the Greek and Roman stuff, uh, um, that, than, than it does in, in, in the near Eastern material. Yeah, and even uh, then, uh, well, even then, when you look at the New Testament, they're outside of, of course, the book of Revelation, eating the scroll and this vision of powerful symbolic vision, as we both agree, went really into the collective unconscious and fished out this amazing stuff. Is there anything else in the New Testament that could point to any sort of psychedelic? If you take I mean, a look Paul at the goes to Arabia, Jesus is out in the desert. Yeah, yeah. Well, Paul, you know, has this vision there, white light, it doesn't, doesn't say he ingested anything. Uh, but certainly, you know, when it references to the anointing oil, it says, you know, you've been anointed, so you require a future and stuff. And this was one of the main points of contention between uh, um, the Catholic Church and, and a lot of Gnostic sects was baptism versus anointing. And Kurt Rudolph wrote about this so, while well, drawing no conclusions or uh, ideas about it being a psychoactive substances. But the Gnostic texts themselves, you know, say there's only water in the baptism and it's uh, uh, there's fire in the anointing oil. And through the anointing oil, we're initiated into unfading bliss and referred to it as a straightener of crooked limbs and, and medical applications. Uh, um, so I think there is some, 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 you know, something in the anointing oil versus uh, water baptism that led to some sort of split. But uh, yeah, I, I didn't really go too much into the the Christian period in this book because um, the, with the archaeological evidence, the the the, the case for the, for the Jewish use is so strong, and I think really solidifies. Uh, uh, the identity of Canada and Canada Boston with cannabis, be, uh, just because there's so many overlaps between the the, the two. Uh, um, that whereas when you, you start getting into this Christian material, it's it's just so much to deal with, and it's a little more speculative. Uh, I would like to deal with it at some point and readdress it. I uh, I had planned to when I'd started the book, but then it just gets so big, and so I just figured I'd cut it off at the Old Testament. And then the, the the topic of Jesus and Christianity has become so complicated now. You know, it's like every time it comes up, you have people arguing with, did Jesus even exist? You know, <laughs> the mythicists come out. Yeah. yeah. So it's so hard to, to talk about. Some think he was a mushroom. Yeah. yeah <laughs> like exactly. Allegro. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, on that subject, I think that, you know, uh, um, most of the stuff that you see out of, you know, the, the psychedelic scene on, on uh, drugs in the Bible is crap. You know, and I, I, I kind of not made myself too popular by my peers with uh, uh, writing critical articles of uh, uh, of their books, like uh, Brian Marescu's uh, uh, the Immortality Key or, uh, or the uh, Psychedelic Gospels by uh, um, the Browns and, uh, you know, Allegro and all these things. And I think there's lots to be picked apart there. You know, it's like we definitely know that substances like 
cannabis and opium and mandrake were used because they wrote about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's <laughs> aging textual references. And, and largely in a lot of this other type of stuff, it's based on like really loose speculations about imageries and medieval paintings and uh, other things with no, no, nothing to back it up. No archaeological evidence, no other textual evidence that you know, clearly identifies it. Uh, um, so it kind of convolutes things, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, here's this real evidence and it gets kind of lost by the wayside because there's so much uh, uh, frivolous speculation. Not everything can be true. And I think there's a real lack of uh, uh, critical thinking in the, in the psychedelic culture uh, uh, in regards to a lot of this type of stuff. Uh, well, at the same time, there's a lack of, uh, uh, of realization and openness, uh, uh, you know, uh, understanding of, of the context of this uh, amongst academics and historians, because they don't really have the same experience uh, uh, with these psychoactive substances, you know. And uh, I had hoped this this material from Telerad would, you know, I'm kind of surprised it's still so little known. You know what I mean? It's like really? nobody's challenging the results of the material, but you're not really getting a lot of academic uh, 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 um, discussion of it. And it's like solid proof that they were burning cannabis in order to speak to the gods, you know? Uh, uh, um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's odd. It's almost the same way, Chris, when it comes to astrotheology. I think scholars still think that the ancients sat there with a book or a Kindle, and that's something they don't realize that the truth is, again, they probably went into an altered state of mind. Uh, they did some performative thing because, you know, people needed to be, you know, ah, I'm Jesus or I'm Yahweh. They needed to be entertained. And they always did it under the stars, under some sort of the perfect time. And they could point out and here you go. Here are the stars. Let's remember this as a mnemonic device. So the same way with astro astronomy, scholars are slowly coming around to that. You know what I mean? And yeah. But that's the truth of religion. They weren't just sitting down reading books like we do. <laughs> and frankincense, I mean, the Magi bringing stuff to Jesus. Frankincense was a, could give you an altered state of mind, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's believed like uh, it's got uh, um, some THC-like molecules in it. Very, it works on some of the same receptors, I believe, and can be used as like an antidepressants and things. There's, there's some studies going on in that regard. Awesome. Awesome. Vance, do you have a question for Chris? Oh, let's see. I've been racking them up here, listening to you guys talk. <laughs> um, what do you think, what do you think people are actually talking to, you know, when they use entheogens? Is it really, um, you already said that you didn't believe in some sort of disembodied uh, entities yeah. or anything. Well, what, what is it? Are they really all that activity back in the ancient times? What were they just talking to themselves or aspects of well, themselves? Well, I do or think things, this aspect. Yeah, I think there's like a collective consciousness that's kind of aware of itself, you know, like uh, um, in aware is coming into awareness of itself. It's like, you know, like a, a herd of animals or school of fish is under control of something. Right. You know what I mean? And I think that there's some sort of force in life itself that is aware it's an intelligence but not the not, not the same sort of intelligence as as us and 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 it's sort of becoming aware of itself so i think that's i i like i've, I've had you know i've had spiritual experience i had really profound experiences of synchronicity that i i can't identify 
under any sort of uh, other banner than some, something with a the, uh, the ability to act through collectively through humanity or something, you know? Um, so I guess I, 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 it's not that I, I'm not an atheist, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, I guess I think that things like, as I said, uh, Anthropos or Adam Cadman or even Shiva could fall into that kind of territory uh, 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 of deity. Um, so, I think that in some cases, you know, they are, they are kind of getting into contact with something. Um, Do you think it likes us or, or is it out for itself? I think um, Yahweh was out for itself. Kind of, yeah, yeah, I know. It's like, um, man, I look at the world. I, I don't know. It's like, it, it just, it, it doesn't seem so, I, everything, I, I'm not really feeling a lot of love. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. You know, uh, maybe maybe this maybe the ending comes out better or something. I, I really don't know, but Let's right hope. Now, man, I'm like I'm out here and no, you know I kind of gave up on shit, and I'm out here in Nova Scotia surfing because I just kind of felt feel like I've been banging my head against the wall trying to change the world, and it's just not happening, man. You know what I mean? Like the the climate change and things like that. It's like it's not like we don't know what's wrong with it. It's not like we don't know the course of action, but trying to implement it is impossible. There's no government that's going to do it. And no government would get elected that would be willing to take those types of steps. Uh, um, because uh, down to the individual level of the voter, uh, people aren't willing to give up uh, uh, what we need to give up and make the changes that, that we need to make. Um, and I, and you know, when I take a look at like Christianity and like, you know, it's like, man, this is what's like bringing Trump into power again here, you know, uh, it's, it's, it just seems also such a mess. I just don't know what to suggest or say there that I, I used to have a more positive outlook and, uh, uh, uh hope. And I, I guess, uh, it's just kind of, it, it departed from me. <laughs> Chris Bennett became a full-blown Gnostic. <laughs> yeah you could say this anthropos has led us to this right the collective unconscious this is where yeah, we've gotten anthropos may think it's yahweh you know what i mean it's like uh uh uh, uh um that that's a possibility uh, um but at the same time i don't know it's like i kind of had to back off psychedelics because i i felt like i got through a lot of my own baggage but i was still feeling this like angst or despair and I, I kind of feel like it's a global angst or despair uh um and that's that you know that was one of the things that kind of drove me out to activism was like hey well i've got to go out and change the world if i want to get yeah, it. Yeah. but i it just i just man everything just became such a mess it's like i i used to think of psychedelics as more of a magic bullet and uh, you know after through COVID and all the QAnon and all that type of stuff, man, it just so much of the scene became so flaky and uh, um, it just doesn't seem like that to me anymore. Well, again, an idiot on acid is an idiot on acid. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. entheogens will magnify and yeah. they'll bring up, but you still have to look in, you still have to do the work. You still have to face your issues, your trauma, the problems of the world. And that, no drug is going to do that. It just helps you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Could make it easier to take. You know what I mean? It'd be a lot harder uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> for me to get by without, without cannabis to ease the pain. <laughs> <laughs> to manage the pain. Yeah. These are, uh, and it's interesting too, because uh, again, 
statistically, we do live in a time where poverty is less than ever before. Uh, there's actually less wars, regardless of what the TV tells you. Uh, we are we deal better with environmental disasters better than ever, regardless of what TV tells you. I mean, the statistics are there, but people are still depression, alcoholism, mental disorders. Those are still on the rise in the West. So. It's yeah. almost like we need what Jung said, a spiritual solution. We need to go inside the unconscious and find the answers there like the old days. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, and I, I think that entheogens uh, um, used uh, ritually could, could that could play a role, you know what I mean, in the unveiling uh, uh, of that and getting down. I've certainly... Uh, had experiences where I've got into my programming and, you know, rearranged stuff and then got over that problem under the influence of psychedelics. And I'm sure that that techniques could uh, uh, be developed or have been developed that would aid in that sort of thing and their, and their use. But, uh, um, you know, it's, it's like here you, in this day, you know, I get like ads for magic mushrooms and shit on Facebook. You know what oh, I mean? Like, so mushrooms I, are legal in Canada? They're not legal. I don't know how, how, how that works. You know, it's like, but there's, there's people advertising them and advertising psychedelic retreats and managing to get Facebook ads and stuff like that. But then you could make a post about these things and get your account banned for a week or something, you know, at the same time, uh, which is kind of weird, but, uh, and the corporatization of, of, of psychedelics, which is happening exceedingly fast compared to the way that it happened with cannabis, uh, there doesn't seem to be a, a, a much regard for the dangers of some of these types of things. You know what I mean? Like uh, um, people have very powerful experiences on, on, on these substances and not all of them are pretty in light bearing. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, it, these things should be approached with caution and a lot of times and uh, not as uh, uh, cure-alls. And I, I think they are uh, uh, tools of initiation and, and, and incredible plant medicines and stuff like that. Uh, um, but there seems to be a, a commodization of them that leads to uh, um, them being marketed as, as cure-alls. And, uh, um, you know, this, you're messing with stuff. You're messing with the very found, foundation of, of the structure of the mind. And uh, you can really jingle stuff up there. You know what I mean? Like bad things can happen. Look at Charles Manson and, and that whole scene, you know, it's, 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 it's the dark side of it, but it's there, you know. Everything casts a shadow, as you would say. And what about ayahuasca? I'm a big proponent and I've utilized ayahuasca. Is that legal in Canada or what's the government's approach? There's like, uh, um, you can get exemptions if you're part of a religion that uses it. Uh, I haven't heard of anybody ever being, you know, getting arrested for it too much or, 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 or ceremonies getting busted. So I think that unless they're getting called into something that is something that they just leave alone but i'm sure if they were getting complaints by you know neighbors holding psychedelic rituals you know, <laughs> um, they <laughs> on it uh but uh surprisingly little in the ways of uh legal actions uh, across the board on that all right so everything yeah it looks like everything is pretty kosher over there in canada when it comes to these things so hopefully it's helping indeed and uh, yeah because uh it's interesting, my uncle is the head of the Santo Daime Church, which is a Christian group from Brazil, the Amazons, originally the Amazons that does psychedelics. And uh, he was arrested in Portugal, not for bringing in ayahuasca, but for bringing in marijuana. 
Yeah, so, yeah. They, they the, the, the marijuana else. caused a big split in the Santa Daime because that's it. Uh, uh, some of them uh, think it's a sacred, you know, the Santa Maria. Santa and Maria. Uh, and the other part of them think it's oh, that's a terrible drug. <laughs> it did, it did. And my uncle's at the part where Santa Maria is good, and he says that's because he start, he start talking about the lunar and the solar, and there needs to be balance. And Santa Maria is just the perfect thing. But then you talk to some of the others, and it's like interesting how religions are, aren't Chris? Always a schism somewhere about Always. something. <laughs> so awesome. Uh, anything else you want to share about your book, where to find it and all that? Uh, you can find it on Amazon or any major bookseller will have copies of it and always interested in people's feedback. Uh, if you want to follow me on Facebook or something, you might you know, I post stuff about from it and other historical material. I'm always keeping an eye on what's happening uh, archaeologically and historically with the uh, new cannabis discoveries and uh, other entheogenic studies. And uh, yeah, yeah, uh, um, keep on keeping on, and uh, um, don't don't let my uh, talks of despair bring you down. You know? <laughs> um, uh, hopefully, I get through it. I've just been kind of uh, uh, um, not feeling that hopeful for the world lately. It's a time of change, so it's not change is not easy. We're changing no matter whether we like it or not, and these changes in Western culture will continue. And sometimes you just feel yeah left out not fast enough uh not how we wanted things to be the flying car or whatever but uh so do you have a website you don't have a website no you don't so just look at you on facebook yeah, i'll have it on if the you google board. my name and cannabis lots of stuff will come up or youtube search my name and cannabis there's interviews and lectures and that sort of stuff awesome awesome and uh, vance any last question or remark or shall we say goodbye to you first I think it's uh, goodbye. Um, I learned a lot. And uh, now I know that when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he got stoned. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he dropped one of the 15 commandments. And only that burning bush. So awesome. Well, uh, certainly, audience, uh, we just scratched the surface. I highly recommend you get Lost Sacrament of the Ancient World Cannabis because you will stay in your bookshelf. You'll always have hard, solid data. Chris quotes all these scholars. He reveals archaeological evidence. He's got the the maps and the diagram. Everything's there. It's like uh, the book that should settle things uh, pretty much. And uh, a great book. And Chris, always enjoyed having you on. Always enjoy having you on AM Byte. And as always, thanks for everything and good luck. Yeah, my pleasure as well. Thanks so much, guys. Take care. Pleasure is all ours. Take care, Chris. And there you have it, you shining crazy diamonds. Chris getting us high enough to bypass Olympus and touch the face of Sophia. As mentioned in the intro, due to Archon monkey shines, we came a bit short of the typical hour and 30 minutes. Thus, I'll provide the interview for everyone as a fall special. For subs, though, I'll include a section of a previous interview where Chris discusses the entheogen use beyond the ancients, specifically in occultism across history, including the drug use of Knights Templar, John Dee, and Freemason groups. Don't miss it, and please sub for the full liberating but psychedelic experience. And it supports this Red Pill Cafeteria. I can't do it without you. For subs, 
led us to more amazing revelations from Chris Bennett. For everyone else, hello and goodbye as always. All I need are some tasty waves, cool buzz, and I'm fine. The idea that the Templars may have picked up some sort of aspects of Gnostic heresy, this goes back to like at least the 18th century people were writing about it. Uh, um, and Von Hammer Perkstyle's uh, Mysteriorum Baphometus Revelatum, that's the whole basis of it, is that the Templars had picked up uh, Gnostic heresies, particularly Ophite Gnostics. Uh, this accounts for the, the ritual sodomy and other stuff. I, I think we've talked about some of the sex rites of early Gnostics. And uh, Von Hammer Perkstall's book makes a pretty interesting case for uh, um, uh, uh, Ophite influence on uh, the later Templars. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think you can put a lot of weight into it, but it's interesting that people have been talking about it. And so my idea is, is that uh, these death and rebirth initiations of cannabis came with some sort of story about uh, um, uh, the, the whole crucifixion, at least the idea that you could... Uh, make it appear that you died and then were resurrected uh, was out there. And we can see this in the earliest uh, European accounts of hashish. Marco Polo's account of uh, the hashishines has it. Uh, the Decameron, um, uh, one of the earliest great works of uh, literature, has a story about a guy giving a, uh, a rascal a potent infusion of cannabis. Uh, well, it is a, a potion from the old man of the mountain, or a powder, actually, from the, uh, the old man of the mountain, so in, in, indicating the assassins. And the guy appears dead and is put in a tomb, and then comes out of it again, you know. Uh, um, so these ideas were obviously around, right? And uh, um, if the Templars were to have suggested such a thing, this would account for their rejection of the cross, their spitting on the cross, their pissing on the cross, these things that they were accused to and admitted to, and in many cases admitted to not under torture. The whole investigation was initiated because Templars were concerned about things that they had done because of their Catholic beliefs and stuff like that. But many of them uh, uh, said, look, I've done this terrible thing, I need to confess type of thing. And this is what led to, to the trial, right? Um, and uh, also, uh, at the same time period, um, a pope that was friendly with the temp Templars, Leo, I forget which number, uh, he wrote about a cannabis-infused wine in a medical book, so it was obviously making its way in there. And uh, the uh, Masonic figure, Villard de Honnecourt, in his uh, portfolio, so Villard de Honnecourt's Masonic journal, uh, 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 the portfolio of Villard de Honnecourt, it's uh, mostly it's about his time in the Holy Land and illustrations of uh, uh, building techniques and uh, uh, artistry there. But there's one page of uh, written text, and that page is a cannabis-infused uh, wine. So uh, we see these things coming into the, the, that time period of time. And many people have suggested that the Templars, one of the heresies that they were doing was the use of hashish. Robert Anton Wilson suggested this in his book Sex and, Sex and Drugs and the Occult. Uh, um, other authors, yeah, an Italian doctor, uh, 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 DC. How do you? How would you say C I C C O? C I C C O. Zizu? Hmm. Yeah, Eco. I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, 
but uh, he's written in his book uh, on uh, medieval medicine that the uh, the Templars had an elixir of Jerusalem, it was called, that he claimed was a cannabis-infused wine. And this claim appears, uh, it was cannabis and aloe in a palm wine. And this claim appears in all sorts of books about aloe vera. And I tried to track this down to see if there was anything to it. Um, and it, it's in a lot of books, but I could not trace any sort of evidence for this cannabis-infused wine under the name Elixir of Jerusalem by the Templars prior to the early 1990s. However, when I went back to source documents, I found that uh, the Templars had Saracens under contract, growing them cannabis in Spain along with saffron and other herbs, and the, the Saracens would not be industrial hemp grower. This is a culture that grew resin cannabis. Um, and also, cannabis was seized at two of the raids uh, on the Templars uh, site. Wow. Considerable cannabis as well. It doesn't say the nature of it. It's just listed on a list of items as cannabis is, is a Latin word used. Uh, um, but it's a considerable amount. Uh, I think if it had been rope or cloth, it would have been listed as such because those types of items are listed. Um, and so it's not clear as to what what the what the uh, connection was there, but uh, um, so I think it's very compelling that idea. But the Templars, as a source of transmission of cannabis into European occultism, is speculative. Uh, however, what is not speculative is cannabis coming in through the magical tradition, and one of the key ways that happened was through the magical text known as the Picatrix. The Picatrix is a Latin name of a uh, earlier Islamic grimoire known as the Gayat al-Hakim, which is thought to have been written about the 10th century. And it was translated into Latin under the uh, orders of Alfonso X, the uh, king of Spain. And uh, this is one of the foundational documents of the Western magical tradition. And the Picatrix has you know, numerous references to cannabis, opium, mandrake, henbane, and, and all sorts of substances. In regards to cannabis, there's one uh, recipe for invoking uh, a messenger of the moon that involves over a pound of cannabis resin mixed with stag's blood and other things, and then burnt, and uh, the messenger of the moon appears in the pillar of smoke, much like uh, Moses' uh, angel of the Lord appeared in the pillar of smoke over the altar of incense where he burnt cannabosum oil. Um, so, you know, it, that's pretty powerful stuff because this is a really foundational uh, document in, in the Western magical tradition. And there wouldn't be, you know, the whole hermetic thing. This is like how it made it in there. And uh, in alchemy, we have direct references to cannabis in the works of figures like Paracelsus. Uh, um, and Paracelsus was familiar with the Picatrix, so he may have even found out about it. Even his use of opium is kind of wrapped up magically. The time period uh, 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 statements, uh, such as uh, Nade's book of magic, the history of magic, from about uh, just shortly after uh, Paracelsus had passed away, um, account that, uh, he, that, that, that his form of laudanum was his philosopher's stone. And that he would use opium also to invoke demons. So it's all pretty wrapped up with that as well, right? Laudan being his, his preparation of opium, for which uh, Paracelsus is also known. But Paracelsus also had an arcanum, which was a, 
a tincture preparation of cannabis uh, that was used for the treatment of epilepsy. You know, in regards to medicine, epilepsy is a big one with cannabis. We see, you know, all these news stories about parents uh, uh, finally, you know, able to treat their children's death-threatening epilepsy with cannabis preparation. This is like a real common theme. And evidence of cannabis in the treatment of epilepsy goes back to ancient Assyrian references where it is used for hand of ghost, which was thought to have been, uh, you know, epilepsy was thought to be possession, some sort of spiritual possession up into medieval times, right? And so this hand of ghost is thought to have been an agent reference to epilepsy. And then here again, we have uh, uh, the paracelsus reference uh, to this cannabis arcanum uh, in the, in, 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 for the treatment of epilepsy. You know, cannabis is in alchemy. It's really related to these tinctures, which may have been part of the same tradition, which I was talking about with the Templars, because their tinctures are basically it's like cannabis infused into alcohol. And uh, there's references to cannabis uh, tinctures under the names of quintessences and arcanums and other uh, 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 types. Also, alchemical water is used uh, in the works of uh, Cardano, in uh, the Lullian Corpus. Uh, there's references to cannabis and arcanums. And uh, they were a pivotal part of spagyric alchemy. And that's like uh, the, the uh, branch of alchemy that works with plants. And it's undeniable that cannabis and other psychoactive substances uh, were used in this branch of alchemy. We have evidence of that going back to Zosimos in the fourth century, who uh, wrote about magicians and practices of magic using cannabis and, and uh, Darnell infused wines and beers. So uh, um, it's not surprising that it carried over into uh, later alchemy as well. Yes, indeed. And your book, uh, Chris, brings, again, so much scholarship. What, and you mentioned there are beyond the Picatrix, uh, hopefully I'm saying it right, but you mentioned there are other grimoires that talk about cannabis or entheogens is connected yeah, to alchemy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, well, there's like, uh, uh, you know, magic and alchemy are pretty interwound. You know, most uh, alchemists were magicians and magicians, alchemists in some way or another. Um, and uh, later grimoires uh, from the 16th century, um, these are uh, contemporary with Dr. John Dee, such as the uh, Sefer Raziel Liber Salamanis and uh, the Book of Magic and Invocation, which has been re-released as the Book of Oberon. Um, both have recipes for cannabis ointments for mirror scrying. And um, uh, uh, this is interesting because cannabis was used in conjunction with magic mirrors and crystal balls well into the uh, 19th century with figures like Pascal Beverly Randolph, Louis Alphonse Cagney, and other uh, Rosicrucian groups and stuff. Um, so this tradition continued for some centuries, obviously. Um, and in um, Sefer Raziel, uh, Liber Salamanis, they, they prescribe an ointment of cannabis and wormwood, uh, which contains uh, psychoactive properties as well. It's uh, used for making absinthe and uh, for seeing devils and spirits in the mirror. And in uh, the Book of Oberon, uh, the wormwood is replaced by devil's trumpet. Uh, numbers of plants have been suggested uh, for devil's trumpet to basically inert plants to more powerful things like Datura. Um, and uh, um, in, again, used for seeing spirits and uh, uh, um, demons, devils in, in the mirror. And um, it's interesting because these are contemporary with the mirror scrying of Dr. John Dee and Edward Kelly. 
And uh, um, there's no way uh, uh, um, that they could not have known about these uh, um, these these magical grimoires because they they were kind of the grimoires of that time period. And when we go into uh, uh, John Dee's actions, the recordings uh, uh, of, of his things, there is indications that there's use of psychoactives in there. Uh, um, and um, you know, there's I'll, get, I'll read you some stuff. Yeah, please do. It's and fascinating. We read how smoke filled the place and invoked entity states. I smell smoke. Proceed, sir, in your purpose. So there's some sort of fumigation going on. Other references indicate some sort of elixir in use that clearly put a person into a drowsy state. Quote, taste of this potion, yea, the savor only of the vessel worketh most extremely against the main drowsiness of ignorance. It, the hand be heavy, how weight and ponderous shall the whole world be. What will ye? And in another account uh, of these actions with the spirits, there is a man about the lack of drugs for an operation and the use of ointment, the suggestion for the use of ointment in their place. And I quote again, I have forgotten all my drugs behind me, but since I know that some of you are well stored with sufficient ointments, I do intend to visit you only with their help. You see, all my boxes are empty. And so at this point, Edward uh, Kelly shows an empty apothecary box to the mirror. <laughs> uh, this brings the response to invoked. How cometh that you pretend to come for a favorable divine power and all your boxes are empty? And uh, uh, as Kelly was a bit of a con man. Uh, um, and yeah, trailer, a bit. You know, <laughs> You know, it's kind of hard to say if it was actually the entity doing it, or maybe it was Jonesing for whatever substances they were using. <laughs> you know, it's important that the uh, 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 new uh, Kunrath, the, the famous Rosicrucian figure, and Kunrath was a student of Paracelsus and was, you know, well aware of opium and other substances used for such purposes. Wow, that is, yeah, very cool. And you make a great argument about uh D and Kelly and their famous adventures, scrying and summoning angels and so forth. But in that same period, we also have the rise of William Shakespeare. Tell the audience about what you found, the connection with Shakespeare and cannabis. Well, you know, again, it's not, uh, um, you know, um, in 2001, uh, a couple of South African uh, academics, Professor Francis Thackeray and uh, Professor uh, Nicholas Vandermeer, were suggesting that uh, uh, one of Shakespeare's sonnets uh, made reference to a dark lady and that this was a hidden uh, reference to cannabis. And they were writing about this and somehow managed to acquire pipes found on the property where Shakespeare lived from the Shakespeare Trust. And they had these tested for residues uh, um, it was, you know, by a, a police department and they found uh, evidence of cannabis and also uh, cocaine and uh, coca in, in another case, in, in another stem, uh, in these pipe stems. And um, they felt that this uh, helped further their theory because these pipes were from the time period where Shakespeare lived on his, on the property he allegedly lived at. Um, and the, uh, I think the policeman said of the uh, tests, uh, enough for an investigation, but not enough for a conviction was the... Mm. <laughs> analysis uh, of, of, of the thing. And this has been a very controversial claim. Um, interestingly, um, Shakespeare incorporated, uh, you know, he wrote, he wrote uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, which is about Oberon, and we were just discussing right. the book of Oberon, where there's this appointment. 
Uh, um, and in the book, you know, in the Midsummer Night's Dream, the ointments placed on a person's eyes, there's magical ointments. And there's also a figure, Puck, also known as Robin Goodfellow. And Puck, um, his catch line is, uh, what hemp and home sons have we here? And uh, Robin Goodfellow is this uh, mythical uh, figure often associated as the god of witchcraft, but he is completely interround with uh, fi- the history of fiber hemp in, in Europe. And his catchphrase was hemp and hempen. And there's just numerous uh, stories and myths about his uh, uh, helping maids uh, uh, um, break the hemp, you know, break the hemp fibers from the stalks. Uh, when they were good and then punishing them when they were bad and uh, all sorts of mischievous tricks, but uh, often revolving around hemp in some way. And so Shakespeare clearly was aware of these traditions and incorporated it into, um, uh, um, in, into, into the, the, the story, the Midsummer Night's Dream. And, you know, Shakespeare also has an account of uh, uh, people uh, faking death with a drug as well in uh, uh, Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, Romeo and exactly. you know, uh, she takes that vial and she thinks, and then uh, Romeo thinks she's actually dead and kills himself. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> it's kind of taken right out of earlier accounts as well. Um, so yeah, there, there's some interesting uh, uh, material there indicating uh, that Shakespeare uh, wrote about cannabis, uh, kind of hit it in a veiled way. Uh, um, and uh, the first actual uh, uh, written reference to his death uh, ap- appears in a poem. Uh, a praise of the hemp seed, <laughs> wow. uh, a British poem, uh, a dedication to the cannabis plant, and uh, a big long uh, uh, a poem all, all about the many uses of it. Even in in alchemy and magic, is kind of incorporated into it as well. Wow, very cool. And this is all, but this was all probably of a, a folk tradition that was out there. I mean, this is all connected to the Green Man, King Arthur, everything. It was the, it was out there. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Francois Rabelais referred to himself as a Robin Goodfellow. Uh, um, so this was over in, in France and places as well. Rabelais, who famously uh, wrote about cannabis in coded references as the Herb Pantagruelian. He was a, a 15th, 16th century monk and bachelor of medicine who wrote a great parody of uh, church and state that he incorporated into the mythical story of two giants, uh, Gargantua and Pantagruel. And in Pantagruel, uh, there's a Grail-like story where Pantagruel's friend, uh, Pantagruel's a giant, and his friend Panurge is this mischievous character. And Panurge is concerned that if he marries, he'll be made a cuckold. And in order to find out if this is going to be the case or not, uh, they go on this uh, epic voyage in search of uh, uh, the holy bottle, uh, an oracle. Uh, that he drinks the bottle and he can have an oracle and uh, find out whether he'll be made a cuckold if he's married or not. <laughs> and it's a journey. And in order to prepare for the journey, they load this herb Pantagruelian uh, confected and then they uh, deck the ship with it, make the sails and stuff out of it and stuff like that. And that's a reference to cannabis. He had three chapters on it and he incorporated uh, uh, descriptions from Galen and other figures uh, about cannabis but coded the name as Pantagruelian to hide it from the uh, folks, I guess he wanted to hide it from the church. And these chapters were banned for some centuries. Uh, but in, in the story, he has the figures drink like the Templars did. The Templar whole Templar stories mixed up with the Grail mythology and also with uh, uh, um, the story in uh, 
gargantuan pants gruel and Rabelais incorporated all sorts of esoteric information into gargantuan pantagruel and uh, is well a well-known figure with occultists in the 19th and 20th century figures like Aleister Crowley for example he took his catch word uh, Thelema and the law of Thelema do as thou wilt directly from Rabelais uh, where there's an abbey of Thelema and the law of the abbey of Thelema is do as thou wilt and uh, Crowley and other occultists were well aware of these veiled references to cannabis uh, as the herb Pantagruelian and even referred to it. Um, so this is uh, high esoteric information that's not generally known, but there's clear evidence that it was known by many occultists. Very cool stuff, Chris. And uh, speaking of, as we go to the 19th century, well, we probably should go a little bit back. Uh, what about uh, the connection of cannabis and secret societies? When does that start? Uh, Freemasons, Rosicrucians, what do we have? You know, again, um, closing chapter, I kind of, there's definitely a lot of Rosicrucians and a lot of Freemasons that are known historical figures uh, that were using cannabis. And, you know, we can see this uh, with figures like uh, Robert Hook and Robert Boyle. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, who started the Royal Society. The Royal Society was actually modeled on the Rosicrucian of uh, the, Rose, uh, the Invisible College. And they, these guys wrote about this, and they wrote about their Rosicrucian aspirations. Uh, uh, Hook gave at least two lectures on the role of cannabis and referred to thousands of experiments taking place in England at that time. Robert Boyle uh, referred to uh, uh, taking uh, experiments with Egyptian del an Egyptian delicacy and a fungus referred to by the French author to see dreams and visions. You know, uh, um, so these are like, you know, the foundation of, of, of modern science, you know, modern agree, academic science yeah. right here. Uh, um, and their experiments were these. Ashmole, another member, he left his uh, uh, name in two at least two uh, grimoires, Picatrix and uh, Seferaziel Liber Salamanis that disguised cannabis for magical purposes. He was also the collector of these documents. And uh, both Hook and he, uh, Hook and Ashmole shared a deep interest in Dee's work. And uh, uh, Ashmole also wrote about, I mean, uh, Hook also wrote about these magic and magical practices as well. So there was a deep interest in this stuff uh, early on. And, um, in Rosicrucians, you know, we, we have 19th century figures like uh, Pascal Beverly Randolph, the founder of the American Rosicrucians. He, he, he was like the largest importer of hashish into the United States at the time and prescribed cannabis in a variety of different medicines and wrote about it extensively. Uh, other Rosicrucian figures in, uh, uh, you know, in Europe in the 19th century, you know, the whole, the whole occult scene, Pappas, all the Martinists, all these guys, they were, they wrote about cannabis and were using cannabis. It's pretty clear. There's like actual, had all sorts of stuff translated out of the French uh, um, from these French occult journals and stuff like that, Masonic journals and whatnot. So it was definitely in use. Now, in initiations, I think that there's evidence, you know, definitely, you know, you, you know, there's masonry and there's quasi-masonry. And mainstream masonry seems to push everything in masonry that doesn't like out of it and make the quasi-masonry. But the people like Cagliostro and uh, Johann Schroffer, who were in the 18th century, 
they got kind of, you know, pushed out of the whole Masonic history and are kind of considered more quasi-Masonic figures rather than the actual mainstream masonry as we know it today. But both Johann Schroffer and Cagliostro were clearly using some sort of entheogenic preparations in uh, their rituals. More recently, uh, um, Philip Newman has suggested that Cagliostro was preparing some sort of DMT uh, preparation from acacia, which is used uh, in, you know, which is referred to in Masonic rituals and, you know, the, uh, an important plant in masonry um, said to have been found on the grave of Arima Biff. Um, and uh, uh, an earlier uh, uh, a contact of Cagliostro's Melisino uh, describes uh, making some sort of cubicle salt stone out of acacia, which was apparently burnt and inhaled, which does seem like some sort of DMT salt. However, uh, um, Elifus Levi suggested that uh, uh, Cagliostro burned hashish as a fumigant. And um, a, a journal of debates from the 1920s quoted some earlier material about an apothecarist who had been through Cagliostro's initiation and said that he had experienced the effects of hashish, which he knew from his work as an apothecarist. And uh, a, a contemporary of uh, Cagliostro's are actually reputed to have had some sort of magical battle where uh, Cagliostro predicted the other guy's death. Johann Schroffer, uh, a Leipzig uh, coffeehouse owner, um, he, he would uh, perform these kind of Masonic seances, rituals, and people would come and partake of a punch, uh, um, and then they would be taken in. There'd be this long invocation, and you know, figures like uh, uh, um, the, the founder of the Templars uh, would appear, and uh, um, <laughs> you know, in ghost form and stuff like that. Uh, um, but uh, Jack and Dimolay goes through Jack and that sort of Masonic themes. But uh, what was later revealed was that. Uh, uh, Schroffer, and I would say that this is likely true of Cagliostro as well, was using this technique uh, known as phantasmagoria. And this has to do with what is known as magic lanterns, which is a primitive uh, uh, slide projector and uh, 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 smoke and mirrors. And uh, they would use these primitive slide projectors. They'd have hand-painted slides. In many cases, uh, the slides were mechanical in the sense that you could pull a little lever on the side and it would make the eyes turn from one way to the other and another one over the head and it would make the mouth open and close. And then with magic projectors, uh, they would have like this whole, it, people would take the punch then there'd be these big fumigations going on and probably the fumigations also contained uh, uh, potent drugs of some kind and the other the people that had paid to be there or, or the new initiates would be there. And uh, after about an hour of invocation, all of a sudden in the smoke, a figure would appear. And this would be uh, 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 done with these projectors and mirrors, which would uh, uh, project the image into the smoke, which would hold it. And it'd kind of be moving around a little bit and combined with the use of drugs and the emotional intensity of being taken through an invocation. People were quite convinced that... Uh, that, that, that something had taken place. Wow, that is very cool stuff. Yeah, and as I show, <clears throat> there's clear indications of this carried over into 19th uh, century uh, uh, Masonic initiations, particularly those associated with the Scottish Rites. And both Cagliostro and uh, uh, um, Schroffer 
claimed that they had rights that had come down from the Templars, which is the basis of the Scottish Rite. And in the Scottish Rite, there's a bitter cup is drunk as part of the initiation. It's a whole death and rebirth initiation as well, based on uh, uh, the, the story of Karim Abith, who's murdered and stuff like that, and he's resurrected. Uh, um, in some versions of the Scottish Rite, it said that Karim Abith is an analogy for Jesus, is, is what's revealed. Uh, um, but uh, the, the idea that this, you know, bitter cup is associated with uh, the, the the drink of uh, Schroffer and Cagliostro, there's a lot of foundation to that. And even in the modern uh, OTO, in their version of the bitter cup, at least originally, uh, uh, laudanum was used according to Francis King and his uh, secret rituals of the OTO. So the idea that a drug could have been used in that was definitely around in the 19th century and clearly around in the 18th century as well. Yes, indeed. And uh, again, so much information. But by the 19th century, wasn't the church already pushing back? And I know you have a great section where you talk about Leo Taxil and his sort of uh, jokes yeah, on that's people. Pretty wild stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty wild stuff. You know, one of, uh, uh, do you know who Donnell is? He was a Fr uh, French guy that was the head yes, of the yes, church at one Of course. Yeah, well, Donnell actually uh, wrote about hashish in the Rose, Croak Street, uh, Rose Cross degree of masonry. Wow. And said, you know, the, uh, um, said that the uh, Rose Cross initiate compared to the regular mason was like a, uh, a, a drinker of uh, mere wine with a partaker of hashish. <laughs> wow. And so, uh, uh, um, but Taxil. He, he created this a whole uh, story of, uh, he had been a, a Mason and an atheist, and he'd written many books against the uh, Catholic Church. But at some point, he feigned a conversion to Catholicism and renounced his previous atheism. And he went on to uh, uh, write a number of books like The, the Mysteries of French Masonry uh, um, and uh, um, described this uh, satanic version of Masonry. And in one account uh, where he, he wrote it under uh, the, the name of uh, Diana Vaughn, a woman who a character he created who had been a part of this uh, Luciferian form of masonry, he described her initiation. And in the initiation, she's given a cannabis-infused wine before she meets Baphomet, and he describes the ritual. And what's interesting is this ritual actually comes right out of the life of Levi's. Uh, history of magic and it's in the same chapter uh, 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 where he gives his famous description of Baphomet and the illustration of it. In that same chapter uh, um, uh, Levi records a uh, kind of Black Sabbath type ritual where a cannabis infused and poppy infused wine is partaken and so you know uh, Taxil just took elements of that chapter and then overlaid it with what he knew about masonry from his uh, experiences in it and created this whole Luciferian Freemasonry it was hugely popular. Uh, he it was particularly popular with the, the Catholic Church. He met <laughs> the Pope and talked about wow. the Pope, totally bought it. And then at uh, some point, people were like, you know, this went on for like 12 years. And uh, there'd be like newspaper stories and continuing stories about it in the press and stuff. And people were really curious about this lady, Diana Vaughn, who had initially been described as uh, uh, um, uh, being initiated into this satanic thing, but then later converted to Catholicism. And people wanted to meet her. People were saying, is she real? This is starting to get pretty carried away. 
And so there was a huge press conference called, and all the Masons and the uh, priests and uh, the, the press and everybody gathered. And uh, 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 Tatsil showed up and gave this hilarious press conference where he thanked them all for partaking of his joke and uh, 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 playing into it so well and that the whole thing was a big hoax. But despite that, his work is still quoted by anti-Masonic <laughs> I love uh, uh, writers as, as being true. And even in, you know, like in the case of some OTO guys, they somehow figured that this Diana Vaughn was still a real person. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they don't know about the hoax and the whole confession. Um, so it, it carried on uh, uh, through both parties, kind of perpetuating uh, uh, the mythology. Yeah, he was like the Andy Kaufman of his days, wasn't it? I mean, the ultimate absolutely. joke. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, real prankster. You know, uh, you, you can easily find uh, information on if you if you Google Leo Taxiel's confession, you'll find his whole confession there. And it is makes you laugh out loud parts of it. It describes the people yelling in anger out of the crowd. <laughs> and they were ready to lynch him, you know, he had to be escorted out of there. It was just it's just awesome. Yeah, great stuff. And towards the the last chapter of your book, I really enjoyed it because you really get uh I don't know, poetic, mystical. You start talking about the collective unconscious and Jung and the benefits of cannabis. Maybe tell the audience a little bit about this uh, wonderful ending to your book. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, like I spend the book, uh, 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 you know, the large part of the book, you know, could be seen as me explaining away magic and stuff like that by by offering, you know, drugs as a, a means of how it all came about and just being hallucinations and stuff like that. But that's not really the way that I look at it. I really think that the role of cannabis in alchemy, magic, and initiatory societies has to do uh, uh, with the way that it brings the, uh, what, what, whether you want to term it the unconscious or subconscious, up into uh, uh, consciousness. And um, it's interesting that the ideas of the unconscious and subconscious actually came about through the research of, uh, of cannabis by early psychiatrists like Dr. J.J. Moreau. And he was uh, seeing cannabis intoxication as kind of evidence of what type of state an insane person might be in or uh, the type of experience you might have experienced in dreams. And uh, he used uh, uh, Gerard G. Nerval, a member of the Hashish Club, as a really prime example. And Young uh, actually gave a, a very long lecture on Gerard G. Nerval because he's such a good example of what can happen when the uh, unconscious or subconscious mind is raised too quickly into the conscious mind, that that, that insanity can occur. And I, I think this is really identifiable in things like uh, um, cannabis's effect in dreaming and also its relationship with the magic mirror. And um, one of the common things that regular users, people who use cannabis every day report, is they dream a lot less frequently. Um, and I noticed this myself, you know, pretty prominent user of cannabis, but I've also noticed on a number of occasions, I've woken up, you know, about four in the morning, can't sleep or something, smoke a bowl of cannabis and I go back to sleep and I have the most intense, vivid dreams that I ever get, most lucid dreams I've ever had. Um, and I started to try to figure out what was happening here. And um, in the 1980s, and unfortunately there hasn't been more studies uh, since then, they were studying the effects of cannabis consumption 
on uh, melatonin. And what they found was uh, uh, immediately upon using cannabis within 15, 20 minutes, your melatonin levels have spiked 4,000 times, uh, up to 4,000 times their regular daytime levels. And so people using cannabis throughout the day, they're spiking their melatonin and they go to bed at night and their melatonin's not coming out in the intensity that produces dreams. Is, uh, is, is what I, uh, I'm seeing here. And um, now when you take a look, what is it dreams? And we dream, we kind of go into a schizophrenic state. We're in the dream. We're telling ourselves a story. And we're even different characters in the dream, but it's all us. But we're still witnessing it, right? Uh, um, and um, this is why I think that it came to play with particularly Magic Mirrors, because... The magic mirror is such a good form of technology for splitting consciousness and uh, cannabis into that. There's spiking melatonin. Maybe they're accessing some sort of aspect of their consciousness. The one that tells them their dreams at night is the one that speaks to them from the mirror. And, you know, this actually really gelled for me uh, um, uh, in this uh, crazy horror movie. Um, I'm just trying to. Uh, just trying to think of the name name of it. It, it was written by this super wealthy meth, meth head who spent his lifetime making this thing. It was all about magic mirrors, and uh, uh, um, you could see that the guy's drug addiction had worked into the script and his vision of it. it was about a, a semi-retarded guy who was uh, uh, seeing seeing a demon within a mirror, but the, the mirror, the demon in the mirror, said, "I'm the one that tells you your dreams at night," and that's kind of true with the magic mirror. It's that same aspect of consciousness that, uh, um, that we're, we're dealing with here. And in alchemy, we have the marriage of the sun and the moon, which could be seen the sun being our waking consciousness and the moon being our nighttime consciousness, you know, our, 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 our shadow self, you know. And it's the marriage of the sun and the moon that is at the goal of alchemy and the goal of creativity, you know what I mean? It's this being able to tap into this unconscious or subconscious mind that is the core of, of, of the create creativity that we experience, you know? Um, and uh, I think initiatory societies that use these substances kind of laid it out in a way that helped to integrate it in a way that, you know, you didn't end up like Gerard Di Nerval in the nut house, you know? Um, and so that's what, I, that, that's kind of the view I have on it. And there's lots of people that have come to kind of similar conclusions and seeing cannabis as this vehicle to the subconscious and unconscious. And I quote numbers of authors going back to the early part of the 20th century in that regard, who refer specifically to basically what I'm talking about here. So it is something that others have identified. And, um, you know, in Freud's view, uh, the unconscious was, uh, I mean, the subconscious was simply the basement of our consciousness all the stuff we didn't want to think about, bad things that happened to us when we were a kid, repressed memories, other stuff. But in Jung's view, it's much bigger. You know, Jung said that the, uh, uh, the collective unconscious was basically the instinctual force of man. What is instinct? But the, uh, you know, sort of genetic information that's able to pass down. And they say that, you know, evidence of REM sleep in the womb, dream state in the womb, may be a means of transferring instinctual knowledge into the fetus and, and this is a current biological theory um and so 
the idea that this unconscious mind might be tapped into some sort of instinctual memory is not out of the question. You know, we take a look at other animals. A horse can stand up on the day it's born. A sea elephant can go catch a fish on the day it's born. These animals are doing this based on some sort of instinctual knowledge that has been passed down, you know. And we have the same sort of biological brain systems and stuff like that. We have that, but this aspect of instinctual function is deeply buried under the forebrain, the, the more advanced evolutionary brain, which gives us our ego and uh, thoughts and that type of stuff. But it's there. And I think that cannabis and other entheogens likely, you know, a lot of these entheogens directly affect the pineal gland. You know, Gnostics were writing about the pineal gland in 95. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, the the paratrade. You know, so uh, uh, um, I think that these substances are uh, giving us access to these deeper aspects of consciousness. And I think that, you know, is when I have my revelation 28 years ago, I think it was that. It was that that recognized what it was. It was like more like a memory than, than, than anything. You know what I mean? Like that's it, you know? And that was reaching through me and saying, yeah, that's it, right there. And that, you know, I think it's Gnosticism, Anthropos, you know, the, the spirit of humanity. 